0: Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past.
1: think We can meditate and wonder whether well our descendants, because I think they'll still be here, what they will think about us, and let us hope that at least they will give us the benefits
0: I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical.
1: So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of
0: our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show, we have Professor Tom Simmons. Tom is a law professor at the University of South Dakota and is a graduate of the University of South Dakota Law. He specializes in property trust and a wide variety of things and has taught classes in his long career. Uh, USD and a wide variety of things, but also on his CV is a long list of other things, such as issues on trust work for Kanye West and so forth, which we'll have to leave for another podcast to explore that with, with Professor Simmons. Why I wanted to have him on the show today was discuss his article that he wrote for South Dakota History Journal on the murder of acting Governor McCook back in 1873 So, Tom, welcome to History 605. I'm glad to have you on the show today. It's great to be here. Thank you. There's a lot of Wild West uh, material and movies and novels and nonfiction books and so forth. And this article I came across struck me as one of those things. And it's not a very well-known incident in history. In fact, I can remember ever having heard of it until I read this a couple of months ago. I was wondering, how did you come across this?
1: Yeah, I thought you might ask me that, and I don't recall exactly. I know that I've always had um, an interest in in South Dakota history and, uh, you know, Herbert Schnell's books, uh, especially, I imagine that I came across it in one of his works and then dove in for for greater detail.
0: Well, it's something where the the details matter and uh, certainly are interesting. As you look across a map of South Dakota today and read the county names, you would instantly you see many of the same names that are involved in this incident back in yes, September of
1: 1863. You would indeed. Uh, uh, names are always so interesting because they they
0: just hang around a long time, uh, even right. after
1: sometimes we forget where they came
0: from. Right. Well, let's start with one county name, McCook, the man who's shot and is, who is the centerpiece of this. Who was uh, McCook, and why was he acting as territorial governor at the time?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, part of the interesting thing about territorial government is that uh, the appointments are not made locally, they're made at the federal level. So that kind of uh, disconnect between kind of what the people might want and what the politicians, uh, which were even much further away distance wise, really in D.C. in the 19th century, if you measure that in terms of the time it would take you to get there a large disconnect, I think, between the appointments and what the people might desire. And that probably leads to a lot of the tensions and even violence that sometimes erupt. So so he's a political appointee. Uh, he was a very successful general during the Civil War. Um, he was in several battles. He was wounded once uh, very grievously. And he participated in The probably mo- the most famous battle he participated in was the end of the siege of vicksburg which ended with the garrison surrender on july 4th 1863 and and many civil war aficionados know that only recently did vicksburg begin celebrating the fourth of july again because of that association with their defeat (laughs) being memorialized on the fourth of july and so he he is actually a member of uh a family of famous individuals. They're very handsome, um, tall, uh, kind of leadership type people, articulate, intelligent. Brothers and cousins are also in in government as well, and and so he's he's quite a famous, uh, almost a kind of a celebrity, uh, appointed as territorial uh, secretary, and, and and almost certainly with ambitions to become either a territorial governor or or, or a governor. His his brother almost becomes. Uh, governor of Ohio, and he has a cousin who's the governor of Colorado territory. So he is not just famous himself, but a kind of a Kardashian, uh, a member yeah. of a famous family.
0: <laughs> right. You you uh, point out, I think quite appropriately, that uh, territorial government is, as you said, it's really a creature of the federal government. And so the McCooks are operating not only in Dakota territory, but in Colorado. They're and their war record from the Civil War has set them up well, I think, for, you know, political career and a wide variety of things, from the Senate to the House and back in Ohio and so forth. How would you describe the role of a secretary, the territorial secretary?
1: Yeah, I mean, kind of like a vice president type of a role, very, very high in the government. There's there's not a thing as a lieutenant territorial governor, but basically that kind of a role. And And you're right, you pointed out he's acting governor for a period of time as well. Governor Burbank is is the governor, but he has mm-hmm. to be absent um, from the territory for uh, a couple periods of time, and then and then his again because of the distances involved, you really can't rule by uh, telegraph very effectively, and so he's uh, he's acting uh, territorial governor uh, like a lieutenant governor might be taking the place of the governor himself when the governor is
0: absent. So the man who pulls the trigger in this whole escapade, though, is a man named Peter Wintermute. I was wondering if you could tell, tell us who is this fella, uh, what is his issue with McCook, and uh, and that I think that the issue, which really is a complicated piece, it involves financing and railroads and banks and so forth. What is Peter Winnemute's anger and his reason for pulling the trigger at uh, McCook?
1: Yeah and part, and part of the mystery is really who who pulled the first trigger whether yeah. Wintermute shot first or or McCook but the way the history of this has kind of settled ultimately is to characterize this as Wintermute's assassination of the territorial secretary if the jury ultimately is the one who decides what what actually happened the final jury verdict is that he is acquitted um that he was acting i would assume the jury found in in self defense and that actually McCook might have fired the first shot, Wintermute, for whom nothing in South Dakota is named, um, <laughs> was a, a, a quite a diminutive, very, very in contrast to uh, Edwin McCook, uh, a, a diminutive, rather thin, fragile kind of looking banker slash civil engineer who was also very heavily involved in in before he came to Dakota Territory in railroad financing and and land grants through Congress that could make that happen and, and those kinds of things. So a very high level type of a person really at, at the top levels of a community in terms of making large things happen. And he's been in the territory for a year or two uh, when things really come to a head ultimately with the territorial secretary.
0: So and you mentioned Governor Burbank. Many of the governors, I think I heard recently, the territorial governors, that is, get quite infamous reputation for being corrupt. And uh, that's kind of the corruption that's implied by Peter Winnemute And all of this deal is very much at the heart of this. Burbank is gone. Why has he left the territory? Right. So there's a, there's a
1: petition that's signed by 1,000 people in the territory, which is a pretty good number, asking for uh, the president to recall him and not reappoint him and so he has to manage that politically and 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 goes out to DC to to make his case and, and does so successfully and, and is in fact reappointed if you, if you think about names in terms of uh, legacies and so forth uh, the town of Burbank is a nice is a nice town i like Burbank that has mm-hmm. um, a single business that's called wimps and the population is about oh 40 maybe yeah. you know depending yeah. on the time of the day And that kind of relates to probably the kind of legacy that he left behind. He wasn't a very well-respected governor. Uh, Probably our worst territorial governor was uh, Ordway. And Ordway was famous for having moved the capital from the mother city of Yankton to Bismarck. And that's bad enough if you're in the southern part of the territory. But not only that, he postured himself... uh, for that by buying all kinds of lots in Bismarck before moving the capital there and then selling them at a profit, which did not really make him very popular. But again, given that he's not voted in, I think they felt a kind of almost immunity. If they were not necessarily the most virtuous persons, the worst thing that could happen, I guess, is that they might not get reappointed, but they really didn't suffer any direct consequences from the people surrounding them who are very unhappy with their levels of corruption. And Burbank kind of behaved in the same way, or at least it it appears so, Mm -hmm. um, in terms of that kind of profiting from political power.
0: So the issue, though, that they want the railroad to come to town to have a terminus in Yankton, right? So the farmers can get their crops to market and and railroads and agriculture will be an intertwined part of South Dakota politics. Well, to, to this day, to some degree, but certainly at this time it is. And... The meeting then is called to um, set up and for the people of the territory or maybe more in particular for Yankton County to establish bonds, to put up the front money to bring to buy the land and bring the railroad into town. Correct? Right.
1: So how this yeah. would, would ordinarily hope the, the, the communities would hope would be that Congress would take this on with a land grant and kind of solve the problem for them. Mm-hmm. By this period in American history, Congress is kind of not doing that nearly as much. And so it, it falls upon the citizens of Yankton to uh, try to get a big loan, basically, and build their own railroad. So they, they right. form an, a, a corporation, the Dakota Southern Railroad, and they, and they have a meeting, a special session, actually, of the territorial legislature to pass a law that will allow counties to uh, take out bonds. And so they, they kind of wire uh, the attorney general for kind of his legal opinion that this session is going to be effective and legal to have because mm-hmm. it's a special session, and the AG the US of the United Attorney States, General.
0: yeah, I don't recall that. at
1: the time, but he so right. he emails he or not emails <laughs> he, telegraphs, he telegraphs back, yeah. and the and the telegraph comes through that yes, it's authorized, and they have their meeting, and then and then a corrected telegram arrives. Somebody in Omaha was kind of half asleep at the wheel, oh, and, and said no, no. What he said was it's not authorized after they'd finished the meeting. So technically, then they have a problem and they go to Congress and ask Congress to pass some little bill that says it's OK, and they do so. And so they're off to the races and they they have a vote on their bonds and it and it passes like 500 to 100 um, and they take out a doesn't sound like much today, like a $200,000 bond, 8% over 20 years. But for a small community and I, yeah. according to my online inflation calculator, that's 5.1 million today. And for a small community, especially. Yeah. Um, yeah. to raise the fund, you know, you're you're a little nervous about that. So they they get the railway from Sioux City to Yankton, and they're I think nervously optimistic. And then they realize that when Congress authorized the special session of let of the legislature, there's a little rider tacked in, probably by Senator Morton, who is related to Governor Burbank, that says the terminus of the line will be in Springfield, oh. not Yankton. So it'll go to Yankton for a short period of time. Yankton will be the terminus until they finish building more rail, but uh-huh. not for very long. And guess who just bought up the town side of Springfield? Governor Burbank. And he's on the board of directors of the railroad and the railroad thinks, you know, we'd like to kind of cash out. And they, they propose to mortgage the line they just built with Yankton citizens money, completely mort- take all the equity right out again. And And so there's understandably a little bit of tension between the governor's pockets just literally being lined with cash um, and, and the equity of the company that the citizens of Yankton really stuck their necks out for being completely diluted and taken away. So they go to court and they get a kind of an injunction. That the railroad has to at least pledge a guarantee for the amount of the bonds before they take out the, this million-dollar-plus mortgage, and the governor doesn't like that to such a degree that he threatens the judge. It's Judge uh, Barnes. With, I guess at the time this is a threat. I wouldn't see it as a threat today. I love Vermilion, but he threatens to move him from Yankton to Vermilion if he <laughs> if he doesn't correct himself. <laughs> uh, and the judge stands firm. But but the uh-huh. the meeting at which this big then violent event occurs occurs just after the injunction has been issued and the parties hope to come together to kind of work out a compromise where they can now go forward with the way the railroad is managed. There's also dissatisfaction among the Yankton community with uh, these repair shops that were supposed to be built to maintain the railroad and, and the and mm-hmm. the engines and so forth. Some in Yankton and, and the railroad never does that. You, if you tour the Railroad Museum in Sioux City, you can see this magnificent railroad repair kind of shop that was constructed up there, but but they never really followed through on their promises in that regard either. So there's still things to talk about. And that's the nature of this meeting of about a hundred people quite late into the evening in downtown Yankton.
0: Now there's two kind of altercations then between Wintermute and McCook. And well, it it might be Assume maybe maybe McCook is in on the cash lining deal. Yeah, so
1: I've never seen any indication of that, but certainly certainly could have been. Yeah,
0: yeah. benefiting as well from yeah. the the governor's uh, profits. Yeah, right. right. You you made a point that McCook was a very tall man, very very rotund. I think there's a photograph in there. He's he's a big fella, barrel chested. Yep. Yes, and Wintermoot is not, and so they get in a little fisticuffs, and Wintermoot... Uh, makes a threatening statement and leaves the room, and then evidently he went to get get a pistol.
1: Yeah, there's this initial kind of altercation uh, during the meeting, which is just full of these very long speeches that are hard to even imagine nowadays. But people could really yeah. talk yeah. in the 19th century, and 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 about 45 minutes into uh, a speech, uh, Wintermute kind of walks out and in a huff. And apparently, as he's kind of going leaving the room, uh, which is actually the courtroom, they, they they're doubling it its use. It's actually the the courtroom. Leaves and 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 asks McCook, probably kind of sarcastically, "Can I have a cigar?" And McCook says no, in so many words. And 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 Wintermute then. This is probably part of it as well. Next to the Morrison Block is the St. Charles Hotel, mm-hmm. just adjoining. And in the basement of the St. Charles Hotel is a saloon. So if you need a break from your meeting and you want to have a cigar and so forth, you go and have a few drinks. And the alcohol kind of probably added to the fuel
0: mm-hmm.
1: to some degree. So as he's as winter Wintermute's down in the basement having a, a few shots and so forth, McCook then walks into the room and they exchange some words. And <laughs> this is my, probably my favorite part of the whole, of the whole episode. The words that set off General McCook are when Peter calls him a dirty puppy. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Calls him a dirty puppy and, and the two clash and McCook basically ends up with Wintermute's face in a spittoon, very ingloriously uh, being bested physically by this much bigger man. And he has some abrasions and so forth on his face. And, And then they, they part ways again. That's the uh-huh. initial exchange in the in the bar.
0: So then the meeting is continued. And who's chairing the meeting? It was chaired by uh, another former territorial yeah. governor, Edmonds. Who's, who's a Yankton resident. I think he spent right. the rest of his life in. Dakota yep, territory.
1: you just you know, county after county of the characters, yeah, or towns. So, so uh, what Wintermute does then is he 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 goes and he sits in the middle of the room where the stove is, and it's September eleventh. 1873, another kind of infamous date. Uh, Mm -hmm. At the time I wrote the article, we hadn't had our September 11th tragedy yet. And in rereading it, I recognized for the first time, like, oh, the date is actually September 11th. And so Winter Mute, it's about 11 o'clock now at night, is sitting in the middle of the room near the stove and kind of watching the doorway. And McCook then enters, and then the shots start to fire. There's several shots, about five people Mm -hmm. count, at least four. And the first one goes wide of its mark. And McCook being the kind of guy he is, I guess, assuming that Wintermute fired the first shot, most people would run away, uh, if, especially if you're not armed. And it's never really discussed anywhere in the pleadings that I can see whether whether McCook himself was armed but or whether he had obtained a gun from somebody at some point. So it's not clear exactly whether Wintermute shot first, but if he did, then it motivated McCook to tackle him. And the Justice of the Peace tries to get in the middle of them and hold back Wintermute. And Wintermute makes a second shot under the Justice of the Peace's arm right into uh, McCook's uh, lower ribcage and then out through his shoulder. Mm. Then they tussle. I mean, McCook is not done. He's just kind mm. of right. It's like a bear or something. You just pissed him off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so wrestles him to the ground, gets him on the ground, and is just about to kick his face, but then kind of lets him get up again. And then once he gets up again, then takes him again, drags him over to the window, second floor of the of the Morrison block, breaks open the window, and has just about got him thrown out of the window before people kind of subdue him, all the while, you know, with a with a bullet in his chest that's uh, punctured his uh, subclavian artery, and he's it's a mortal wound.
0: They get them apart. How many people are in the room? About a hundred. Oh, my gosh. So, ostensibly, a hundred witnesses. You would think... Now, in the trial, with a hundred witnesses, you could probably pile up enough evidence to determine one way or another who shot who. But that is not the case, is it? Oh, by, by the way, poor, poor Edmund McCook bleeds to death and painfully dies uh, by dawn the next morning. He's gone. He's dead by morning, yeah. Uh, who then uh, takes us to trial and and in territorial government would be the prosecutor and so forth.
1: Right. So it's, it's, it's interesting after, uh, after the event, then, uh, under the federal system, you have to go to a grand jury, uh, for an indictment. Um, you can't file just an information or it has to go through the grand jury proceedings and it's, uh, territorial at that time Mm where that's the law that we're governed by. And, And so there's an initial uh, proceeding again with uh, Judge Barnes um, to attempt to indict winter mute for uh, murder. And although prosecutors, it's often said. Could get a grand jury indictment against a ham sandwich if they wanted to, because there's there's only one side of the story being presented. Mm -hmm. The grand jury does not return an indictment of murder, but only of manslaughter. And the new territorial secretary, who is uh, Edwin McCook's father-in-law, doesn't take that outcome very well and again threatens Judge Barnes uh, with a move. This time, though, not to and carries it through, actually, sends him to Pembina, which is the the third kind of um, seat of territorial government. There's court in Yankton, a court in Vermilion, then a court way up next to Manitoba in pembina and ships him up there and brings down judge shannon uh who was the the judge sitting in in that court okay another county name right and so so the first indictment has no one uh in the government very pleased and a technical flaw is found in it they didn't follow quite the right procedure and so that indictment is actually quashed and they get another run at it and this Mm -hmm. time the grand jury was an assemblage of different Persons actually, a grand jury of sixteen men um, returns an indictment of, of murder. So that's a non-bailable offense,
0: and Wintermute goes goes to wait a trial in jail. And then uh, the trial occur. How long does this I'll take then to get the indictment and in for the trial? Yeah, the, the the
1: trial the trials are, are going to go on about a week, and what's what's there's two ultimately, and they're quite similar. And what's really really fascinating, besides the dirty puppy comment, is reading the old uh, newspapers. Because not only do you get a pretty detailed description of what happens every day, there's actually a journalist in there who's essentially like a court reporter. Essentially, you get what looks like verbatim testimony from each of the witnesses in in great detail with cross-examination. And the whole thing is right there in the paper, which would, you know, understandably be pretty interesting for folks to read. And, And the courtroom is just packed as well with people uh, if they have the time to go down and and watch the spectacle and, and hear all the witnesses. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the the fact that there's a hundred witnesses to the murder, if it is in fact a murder, I mean, if if, if indeed Wintermute mute uh, sat there waiting for McCook to come by and then assassinate him. A hundred witnesses isn't necessarily a good thing for a prosecutor because people all say things a little bit differently. They will have different perspectives. They'll see slightly different things. No one in that room, though, apparently actually saw Wintermute raise his arm with the gun and fire the first shot. Mm -hmm. Everybody heard the first shot, but no one actually saw him at that particular moment. Nobody had their eyes on Wintermute at that particular moment. And what a lot of witnesses recall is that the first shot had a much different tone to it than the shots which followed, which would suggest that maybe the first shot came from the hallway If McCook was standing in the hallway aiming at Wintermute and then they're in the courtroom where the death happened. Right. Mm -hmm. So they're looking at bullet holes and so forth and trying to figure out, well, if the first shot was fired from the stove towards the hall, there ought to be a bullet hole right about here in the doorpost. And there isn't. And then they look at other bullet holes like in the chairs of where the judges are sitting to see where the you're know, kind of doing forensics and, and yeah, angle exactly. kind of reconstruction to figure out where the shots were fired in the place where the shots occurred.
0: Now what kind of pistols are they using? These are rifled pistols?
1: No, so uh, Wintermute has a 32 caliber okay. pistol that does not automatically recock. Okay. You have to manually Feed yeah. the next uh, shell into the chamber, okay. and that's the other piece of evidence that I think casts some reasonable doubt on who fired the first shot, because the first, the two shots initially come in very quick succession. Too quickly, the the defense argues for a non-automatic recocking pistol to okay. have fired twice, yeah. and so the second shot then more likely came from Wintermute gun, and that's why they. They were fired in such quick succession. Um, the historian Kingsbury has his own kind of version of of what maybe happened, which also would at least be enough to shed some reasonable doubt on on the prosecution's case. Is that yeah. Wintermute fired first, but just intending to scare McCook, mm-hmm. which does kind of make a little bit more sense. It, it's hard. It's always hard to get in the mind of someone who kills someone. But it's it's kind of hard to imagine this dirty puppy incident escalating to shooting someone that quickly, even with alcohol and all the every you know, all the other stuff added in. And so maybe Wintermute fired the first shot over his head, hoping to scare him and embarrass him by having him run away. But a a Civil War veteran probably isn't going to be scared by one bullet uh, Mm. or one shot. He's faced quite a bit more with than that. And yeah. and that plan, if that was the plan, uh, didn't work.
0: Well, you mentioned George Kingsbury. There's another county name. Um, That's right. We're just ticking him right. off here. Uh, That's right. And George Kingsbury was kind of the territorial historian. He had a kind of other administrative roles, I suppose, from time to time in Yankton and in territorial government. But we owe what we a lot of what we know about the territory is from George Kingsbury. So, yes, well, and then so it, it really lends to the difficulty in doing uh, historical analysis and legal analysis, right? When you have a hundred witnesses, but nobody's looking, right? Everybody's focused at the proceedings that's going on in the meeting. Nobody happens to see and a hundred people just hear, and then have to recreate this in kind of a CSI version of 1873 where they're doing the yeah, basics and, and uh, finding the bullet holes and the blood and the trail of all that uh, strewn around the room with the chairs and everything. What a, what a scene that must've been.
1: Um, Absolutely. Right. And, and, you know, and he's bleeding and, and Wintermute is covered with blood as well. And it's, it's yeah. a, it's a real mess. So the
0: first trial ends in a, a what, a mistrial or acquittal or what?
1: No. So the first trial ends with a guilty verdict, but again, not of murder mm-hmm. on the uh, secondary uh, charge of manslaughter okay. again, which, which probably disappoints everyone. Uh, you know, I think Wintermute is probably not pleased with that. It's a 10 year sentence not pleased with that outcome. And of course the prosecution is not pleased with it at all. And so there's there's an appeal to the territorial Supreme Court, which at the time would be a panel of of three. And it's a big, long opinion, 40 pages, and each judge writes their own version of what they think uh, the right outcome is. But two of the three believe that there is another technical problem with the way the grand jury was conducted. And the defendant had oh. Legally speaking, the opportunity to object to individuals who served on the jury at two different points during the during the grand jury, and he had raised a second objection that was denied because the judge had thought that that law wasn't in effect when it actually was, and so he was deprived of the right to object to someone on the grand jury, which throws out the indictment as
0: well as the conviction which follows, and you have to start all over. So the prosecutor gets another run at it. And, yeah right and by now right. how many months have has gone by between that
1: so the the next trial the second trial uh, commences on August 30th 1875 and mm-hmm. it concludes with the jury returning a verdict on September 11th 1875 oh. almost to the almost to the hour of when the murder occurred two years wow. two years later and this one is an acquittal and winterme huh. walks. So what does the McCook family think of all this while the
0: trial is going on and then afterward? They're yeah, I mean, his, his
1: widow McCook. and his young son uh, leave uh, Yankton quite shortly after. She comes back to testify. Mm-hmm. Um, they're clearly, you know, really devastated. I'm personally not convinced one way or the other whether Wintermute um, fired the first shot, was acting in self-defense um i i kind of think it it sounds more like he was sitting there waiting with a loaded gun for the secretary to enter the room that's what it sounds like that's kind of trying to balance the evidence and not really asking the true legal question of whether the prosecution had proof beyond a reasonable doubt of premeditation that i don't they had a hard time establishing that at at numerous junctures not just in the it's not like the final outcome is a fluke i mean the initial grand jury had a problem finding murder the the first jury had couldn't find murder at all and then the, mm-hmm. and then the second jury finds that there, it, apparently more of a self defense kind of theory you would you would think that the that the jury had adopted
0: well and your article kind of uh, concludes then after all this gone by with with the territorial legislature realizing there's some things in their code they need to tighten up i suppose and and
1: yeah, so one of the problems and, and, and South Dakota is one of the very first states to actually do this. We used to just pass laws every session and then not organize them after that. You would just have all the laws that were passed during a session in kind of like a, a pile. And then the next session we do another pile and you just have several piles of legislation and very difficult to kind of read what we would call code where you have all the criminal statutes organized in a kind of a coherent order. And we did then begin to codify our statutes and and remove probably some of the problems that arose from these proceedings were the result of not codifying law and being able to tack exactly what text goes with what
0: text. So that process will start. So today when the legislature wraps up its work, I think that must be the LRC that goes through a process to codify the law. And then on one January, the website, boom, is updated and Everybody knows that it's South Dakota codified law is now in effect, right?
1: Right. That's the idea of codification: is is after after things are passed, then putting them where they kind of fit yes. in a code. Yeah.
0: Find find the amendment to that that part of the statute and 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 put it in there. That's right. Right. What's the popular? You, you mentioned the newspapers and so forth, and you're absolutely right. It's it's reading newspapers when looking for one thing. I'm always struck by. Oh, other things are happening too, and it's—you see the other things that are in the news that day that you never would have associated uh, with that event, except that it happened on the same day. As you've gone through the newspapers, and then and then uh, the other thing subsequently, in writing up this article, what was the popular response to such a frustrating result?
1: Yeah, you always wonder, like, is the is the newspaper. Indicative of the community's views or or is it a cross-section or is it not? Mm -hmm. And and I I, I think the general sense seemed to have been that, at least as portrayed in the newspaper, that Wintermute was the villain in this story and and McCook was the victim. And, And that for one reason or another, that that was never the final legal outcome and that was a disappointment. Mm-hmm. That seems to be the tenor of everything. I mean, and the, the other thing I think with all this is you can see how close we are to the civil war. When when McCook is initially having some arguments with Wintermute prior to the big meeting, they have another meeting where they also are essentially trying to interrupt one another and really building some animosity towards one another. McCook refers to Wintermute and, and his group of supporters who are against the governor as copperheads. That's about as low as you can get. That means yeah. a Confederate sympathizer.
0: Yeah. What Did Wintermute serve in the war as a Confederate? No. No. So, <laughs> so uh, Copperhead or Dirty Puppy? These are... Right. Right. Those were as bad as you get. That's fighting words, man. It's worth shooting somebody over. Apparently <laughs> so.
1: I've never personally called someone a Dirty Puppy, but I I, I, I wouldn't think it would generate the same degree of uh, response as it, as it did Back in
0: 1873. Right. Well, are there any other county names or so that you'd like to bring up? The judges or uh, I think uh, we mentioned Shannon, Kingsbury, McCook.
1: Uh, Judge Kidder is a very important early justice. Um, okay. Judge Shannon, um, Shannon Wayne us, right. has an excellent book out about uh, justice oh, right. and Judge Shannon. Um, McCook County is named for the slain territorial secretary. Um, Wintermute's attorneys were Solomon Spink. Uh-huh. Gideon Moody and Bartlett Tripp. There you they go. Each have yeah. um, a county and, Bar- and Tripp has a, as a town as well. Uh, Hand County was named for the attorney for the government. Hanson County bears the name of the major who stepped on Wintermute's arm and wrestled away the pistol from him. City of Brookings received its name from Wilmot Brookings, who spoke for the railroad directors at that September 11th meeting. Zebach County is named for Francis Zebach, a witness. And two Western counties bear the names of, well, not anymore, but Judge Shannon. That's now Oklahoma, Lakota County. Oglala Lakota County and Bennett. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Burbank, finally, with a yeah. tiny little settlement near Vermilion. Yeah.
0: So did the railroad ever come through? Or?
1: So the railroad goes through. And in 1873, there's a national recession uh, that's fairly serious. Yes. And the citizens at that point realize it's really pointless to continue to argue the railroad into building more repair shops in Yankton and so forth. And so given that, I think the status quo just becomes kind of to accept the fact that we've got a fairly leveraged railroad that's going on to Springfield in the near future. And, mm-hmm. and there's some disappointment,
0: uh, especially when the capital gets moved not long after that yeah. to Bismarck. Well, Tom, thanks for your time and thanks for joining us on History 605. I just wanted to take the opportunity to to thank you for that and to mention your article, which is, can be found online, South Dakota History. It came out the summer of 2001, and it's entitled The Territorial Justice Under Fire, The Trials of Peter Wintermute by Thomas Simmons. Thanks a lot for joining us today and uh, wish you well in your semester coming up.
1: Thank you, Ben. I appreciate it. It was a joy to be with you today.
0: We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting. And most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.